together, and it's certainly good to look at the work. Uh, there's no lack of uh, opportunities to profit by just studying together. And, um, you know, keep doing this. It doesn't take this environment, and it certainly doesn't take me, to read the Bible together and talk about it. You can do it. You know, when you're together with each other, take some time, even prepare ahead of time if you can, and, and study some things together. You know, read some things, talk through them. You know, make your time when you're with each other spiritual. You know, have some studies in your dorm room or in your bedroom or wherever, and the classroom, and you know, tell people, hey, we're gonna get together and read the Bible together and talk about it a little bit. And it's amazing, you know, what can be done in that. There's no, there, there, there's, you know, it, it's just so, so helpful to just read the Word and look at it and grow from it. So we're in chapter seven now, and uh, we're to another feast. You know, this was the Passover feast time in chapter six. Now we're the Feast of Booths, that uh, seventh month feast, the Tabernacles feast. So when somebody read chapter seven, verses one to 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, and he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Jews, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to the feast, because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. If you look at verse 1, you know this is kind of a low point in Jesus' career. There have been all these defections in Galilee. And uh, there is, are the dangers in Jerusalem that he faces. And so it's just a difficult time. He's not able to walk around in Judea and be there. That's a difficult time for him uh, because they're trying to kill him over probably the healing of the paralytic on the Sabbath day. So he's in Galilee and the Feast of Booths is there and his brothers, he's with his family. And his brothers give him some uh, advice. What do they suggest for him? be a good time to demonstrate who you are. Absolutely. Why don't you display yourself? After all, all the Jews are going to be there in Jerusalem. And, you know, I mean, it pays to advertise. I mean, if you're going to, to make an impact, you're going to really uh, display yourself to the world, I mean, you've got to do this publicly. You've got you've to show this. Maybe they're offering this marketing strategy because he's lost so many followers. You know, so many have defected. I mean, he's got to do something to recover the numbers. And so that's their advice for him. Now, verse 5 says, 
for not even his brothers were believing in him. It's kind of a curious thing, isn't it? Would you take this as the advice of people who weren't believing in him? Did they believe in anything? What did they believe, obviously? They were Jews. They probably believed in the miracle kingdom. Perhaps. What did they believe in about Jesus? He could do some miracles. Yeah. They thought he could do the miracles. We're back to this failure of the faith that just sees the wonders and is just impressed by the wonder. You know, they're not really believing in him in the sense they're not really trusting him. You know, what they've seen him do has not led them to really trust and commit themselves to him. Think about the shortcomings of what they're saying. You know, it's like they're trying to dictate the terms to Jesus and they're seeing him as somebody who was seeking worldly popularity, which he was not, Josh. Okay. Think about it, so we'll come back to um, So, you know, Jesus points those out. He says, my time is not yet here, in verse 6. But your time is always opportune. Jesus didn't choose his own time. He, he acts on his father's timetable. They're trying to dictate the terms and the time to him. You know, Jesus doesn't just live by, hey, here'd be a good chance. Maybe this would work. You know, it's all on the, the calendar God has predetermined. And for them, your time's always opportune. You know, for people who aren't governed by the Lord's will, one day's as good as the next. Now, God's timing doesn't mean anything. But, but for him, for Jesus, everything is kind of programmed and scheduled out by what the Lord says. You remember, Josh? I think so. I think so. Really, are their remarks a little similar to Jesus' mother in chapter 2? And kind of the same pattern. They suggest something. Jesus denies it on their terms, something to display himself. But then he turns around and sort of does it in a different way, not in the way that they had in mind. It seems to me like chapter 2 and chapter 7 are somewhat parallel. Now Jesus points out further, he says in verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that his deeds are evil. They were compatible with the world. The world does not hate those who fit in. The world hates those who unmask the hypocrisy. Those who, who tell it like it is. And so they hated Jesus. You can go up to the feast, Jesus says. You know, but my time's not fully come. I'm not going to go up. Not this time, not in this way. You really see that neither Jesus' brothers, neither Jesus' mother, nor now his brothers are the ones who dictate the terms for Jesus. Jesus acts according to the Father's agenda alone. So he does not, at this point, go up to the feast. His brothers do, he stays in Galilee. Comments or questions through verse 9. What is verse 7? I'm sorry. Uh, 
but I guess I'm just struggling with why does why is he telling his brothers this? Well, that, that the world doesn't hate them. In a sense, he's saying. Okay, we can develop that out a little more. I mean, look at verse one. Jesus can't go to Judea. He's not because they're trying to kill him. His brothers have perfect freedom to go to Judea, go to Jerusalem, do whatever they want, whenever they want, because the world doesn't hate them. They haven't rebuked the world like Jesus has, but they hate him. And so unless Jesus is going to precipitate his own demise at an hour that had not yet come, he's going to hold back and not do this in a public way, uh, coming into Jerusalem as they were suggested. It wouldn't... You know, because the world hates him, they would have killed him before the hour. Does that make more sense? Henry? Is there, in verse 6, then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Does he mean it's not time to, for him to, be, to die on the cross? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, Christopher. Um, are they here when he calls them my brothers? Are his brothers, are they actually his brothers, or are they, in other words, his disciples, and they're still on switch? I think his brothers, his physical brothers. Mike. Who are they calling his disciples? Which verse are you looking at? The uh, three. Yeah, probably so, like, you know, he would have people who would be sympathetic with him in Judea. Go and rally the troops. Salt. Interesting. Verse 5. Um, the brothers weren't believing, and his brother said, You're disciples, not us disciples. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yes. Logan? Is it possible that, uh, that by his brothers not believing him, they weren't even believing that he could do the signs? Because it seems almost like they're saying, they're mocking him and saying, Go up if you can really do these things. I don't think so. I think they believed he could do the signs, but they don't believe him. Like a lot of them do. Oh, they, they're impressed with what Jesus can do for them, with the marvel of it, but it's not caused them to believe in Jesus himself and trust him. I think this is more of the same pattern of, a, of, a, of an inadequate view of the signs that don't really lead to an entrusting a commitment of ourselves to Jesus. John? Is the, is the gospel consistent in its use of the word believe as far as true belief? No, I don't know. I mean, belief, we've at least had that one passage, whichever it was, I'll have to think a second, where they believed, or the, that nobleman in chapter 4 believed and then later he believed. You know, so clearly you have different levels of faith, at least. And you've had in John 2, they believed in him, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. So no, I don't think belief always in John refers to a full belief. Sometimes it can be used for an inadequate faith. faith. Um, in verse um, 31, his brothers want Jesus to depart and show himself. Are they really testing him so he can go over there so he can get killed and no, I think they think this is good advice. You know, go, go display yourself. Obviously, this is interpretive, but I think I think they're sympathetic. Just don't understand. They're not. They don't understand deeply. But I think they they think this would be good advice. You know, why not? If you want to be known, hey, go where the people are and make a display. Is he doing so? He wants him to do it so he can make a 
Like he can be their king? Maybe they would have that idea. I don't know. But maybe. A lot of them did. Christy? Uh, some would say that Verse 8 and verse 10 might contradict each other. What would yes, good point. So, Jesus says, I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And then 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So he says, I'm not, uh, you know, not going to come to the feast, and then he comes. I think the idea is, in verse 8, he's not going to go up to the feast like they're talking about. Just like chapter 2, where he says, what do I have to do with you? He's not going to make the wine in the way Jesus' mother suggests. Not necessarily that he won't make any wine, not necessarily that he won't be there at some point in the feast, but he's not going to do it the way the brothers are suggesting. So Jesus ends up as opposed to, um, you know, seeking publicity, Jesus goes up quietly and without fanfare. He does not precipitate a premature triumphal entry. And uh, so I think that's the idea. It's a good question. Ben? Do you think it's possible that Jesus might have said this at the time, not planning to go, and later planned to go? Well, I think that could be possible, but I'm not so sure here that's the point. But I wouldn't deny that possibility. J.D.? Uh, there's so much emphasis on Jesus doing just what the Father wants him to do, and that's why he does it. Maybe with chapter 2 in here, is maybe part of that, he's not going to do it because the brothers want him to do it. He's only going to do what God wants, and therefore, it's like he really does reject them for that reason, but he's going to end up doing a similar thing uh, because it's what God wants. Uh, that, that's at least reasonable. It's, that's more or less compatible with what I'm saying. I agree. Other thoughts? So, I mean, in the, the people, the feast is coming, they're wondering where he's at. And there's this kind of undercurrent. They, they really don't talk about him openly. The Jews have put the quietus on that. But, but they're, they're talking behind everybody's back. Some of them are saying he's a good man. Some are saying, hey, he leads the people astray. Um, but they, they don't debate that publicly for fear of the reprisal of the Jews. Alright, anything through 13? 14 to 24. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, and the Jews marveled, saying, this man no letters, having never studied. Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks his glory and the one who sent him is true. And now when righteousness is in him, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered him and said, You have a demon. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the Father. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. But the man received circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken. Are you 
angry with me because I because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Okay. So Jesus ends up in the middle of the feast, in the temple, teaching. And what astonishes the Jews about Jesus? His wisdom in view of what fact? Yes, and he's not received an education, so to speak. He's not been trained formally by the rabbis to be a teacher. It's the typical prejudice of the elite, of the educated, of the people who think that if you haven't been to the right school, you don't know nothing. And it's kind of ironic that they would treat Jesus as an uneducated fellow. <laughs> you know, really, I mean, who else could teach like he could? And who else would have the learning and understanding, but he's never been educated? You know, people today are somewhat like that. I mean, there are those who believe that if you haven't been to some sort of theological training, some seminary, whatever, you know, well, how could you possibly know anything? Well, we, we all, if we know anything worthwhile, know it from the same source, and that's the word of the Lord. Um, but but his, his answer, essentially, in verse 16, is, I got this from the one who sent me. He's going to be asked, essentially, several questions, like, where did he go to school in verse 15? Where is he from in verse 25 to 27? Where is he going in verse 35? And the answer to all the questions is going to be the same. God, heaven. Um, so, you know, he says, this is my teaching. I didn't, I didn't dream this up. I did not originate this. Um, but, but the one who sent me, it's his teaching. He learned it from a good source. Um, may not have gone to their school, but he's got a good basis for what he's saying. He says, if anyone is willing to do his will, it's a key verse in verse 17, he will know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak from myself. Now, what's going to make you a competent hearer? You know, they're, they're worried about Jesus' competency as a teacher. But he turns this around and, and what's going to make them competent hearers? A willingness to do what he says. You know, this is a pretty key thing. Are there people who read the Bible, who listen to the Bible but never get it? Sure, we know that. What's the problem? Is it that their IQ is a little off? You know, they're, they're kind, of, uh, kind of low on the reading comprehension scale, and so that's why they don't get it. Well, that's just not what you see in the Bible. Here's more of the, the insight into why some people don't ever see it, why they wouldn't really discern whether the teaching was from God or not whether or not the man is willing to do his will. If you obey what you know, it will give you greater discernment to determine what's right. If we really are devoted to doing God's will, we'll be able to understand and know what his will is. So, 
It, what we're seeking determines what we understand. We're really seeking the Lord and His will, then we'll know it. Otherwise, we'll never really understand what He's saying. We think the obstacle to really knowing is intellectual. And Jesus is saying the impediment to knowing is moral. You don't want to do it. You won't understand it. You won't ever be able to properly discern what's from God and what's not because you don't have that commitment to do and to live the way God wants you to. I do think this needs to be thought about a little bit. You know what happens when somebody starts doubting the truth of the Bible. You know, I just have all these questions. I just don't really, I'm not sure I really believe like this anymore. And our first thought usually is, oh, we've got to teach them better. Let's make sure they know all the answers just right. Maybe we get to feed them some passages. That may not, that may be misdiagnosing the problem. Certainly not bad to show things the Bible says, but their problem may not be that at all. It's more likely to be they're not doing what's right, and they're not committing, committed to doing what's right, and that causes them to distort the scriptures and to not see them clearly. The most important factor in understanding is a willingness to obey. Because without that, our moral judgments are really clouded. I'll tell you what, what do you think about uh, this being the more difficult hour of the day? Uh, just difficult to do this without having everybody stand. So why don't we all stand? I'm going to keep talking, but you all stand. It's always my most difficult hour. And uh, I, I really, uh, one thing that's really helpful to me in these studies, I'm standing up and I can move around. If I was sitting down right now teaching you, I would be falling asleep, probably. I just know how I am, right after lunch. That's, that's time for a nap. So I appreciate your cooperation with that. Uh, I'm gonna let you do what I let my kids in camps do uh, at the moment. We'll see how this goes. But you know, nobody needs to see me uh, and it's not that important. I'm gonna just say, as you want to, you're welcome to sit down, but you're also welcome to keep standing as you want to. So you're kind of on your own now to whether or not you sit or stand or whatever. Um, but look at what he says. In verse 18, he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he's true and there's no unrighteousness in him. There you see the problem. Here are people not willing to do his will. Here are people who are seeking their own glory. And, and if you've got that kind of attitude where you're trying to make a name for yourself, or you've got the kind of attitude where you're not really wanting to obey him, you're going to have a really hard time ever understanding what he's saying. So Jesus says, look, the problem's not my authority and my competence to teach, it's your competence to understand and listen, and that's based upon you're not willing to do 
your, my will, and you're too much glory seeking for yourself. Those are the fatal things that will keep you from really understanding. Now, he goes back to this whole situation with the healing of the paralyzed man in chapter 5. That's what got them ready to kill him. He healed the guy. Then you remember, he made bad matters worse when he called God his own father. So for them, he broke the Sabbath and he blasphemed. He says, look, Moses, did not Moses give you the law and yet none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And what do they answer? You got a demon who seeks to kill you. Now, we're going to see a little later in verse 25, the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man that, that, whom they're seeking to kill? The thing of it is, you've got this big crowd from everywhere at the feast. And many of those who come, I have no idea that they're trying to kill Jesus. The people from Jerusalem, they know. Because that's pretty well known in Jerusalem. So the people from Jerusalem are going to say, they're trying to, why, why aren't they killing him? He's right up there in the open. But to the multitude, Jesus said, why are you seeking to kill me? They're like, you've got a demon. You know, you're paranoid. Who's trying to kill you? There's not somebody visibly with a gun, you know, trying to shoot him or something. Um, it's interesting that they say Jesus has a demon. He's going to, in chapter 8, turn the tables on them and say they're from their father the devil. So they sort of trade that uh, remark. And then Jesus defends himself. He says, I did one deed and you all marvel. What's the one deed he refers to? Healing the lame man. And he defends the healing of the lame man by saying, on the Sabbath you circumcise me. You know, circumcision requires activity. You could argue it was a work. But they would override the Sabbath law for the need to circumcise themselves or circumcise their babies. And uh, he says, now you do that for just one member of the body. Obviously, you know, you circumcise one part of the body. He said, how much more I should heal an entire man on the Sabbath day? If you override the Sabbath for one of your body members, shouldn't you override the Sabbath to heal your whole body? So he's really showing by analogy that he had every right to heal a man on the Sabbath day. So he's dealt with the heart of why they're rejecting his teaching. And he's also answering the reason why they wanted to kill him. He did not break the Sabbath. He didn't make, break the Sabbath any more than they did when they circumcised their babies on the eighth day. And that happened to coincide with the Sabbath day. All right, coming to questions to verse 24. You said in verse 17 and 18, you said not willing to obey and glory seeking was what, like the downfall of... Yeah, it's kind of like what keeps him from really seeing what he's saying and being able to properly evaluate if it's from God or not. What do you mean by they marvel? Well, they're, they're amazed and ready to pounce on him. I really like verse 19. I'm not really sure there's much to say about it. But has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus kept the law. He did not break the Sabbath. I mean, if he broke the law, that would have been sin, and he would not have been perfect. He kept the law completely, and yet the ones who did not keep the law want to kill him for not keeping the law. It's just mind-boggling. Yes, it is. And he sees it that way as well. Is Jesus 
here, um, I guess, trying to just point out a hypocrisy in them, or is he saying, is he trying to like defend himself? In some way? I think he's making the argument to show that that it's right for him to heal all the stuff. Why is he using that kind of? A well, I think because they can see it was okay to circumcise on the Sabbath. If it's okay to circumcise on the Sabbath, and not just with one member, why wouldn't it be okay to heal the whole body of the Sabbath? I think he's using that as an argument based upon what they already know is true. They could reason to uh, another truth that would follow from that. So he's not using them as a standard per se, but he's using what they already do Yes, this is more or less an argument based upon their understanding. They understand one proper thing. Based upon their proper understanding of that, they ought to be able to understand this. Alex. So why, is this, why do they say who seeks to do Well, I think they didn't know. These are, this is the multitude that came from Galilee and so forth, so I don't think they realized that the authorities are out to kill Jesus. Those in Jerusalem, verse 25, did. Because they, they were around there and they knew what the authorities were doing. But the people from out of town who just got there, they don't, they don't realize. Does, does he put the clause in verse 22, um, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, just as almost a spite to them that this didn't even originate with the law originated before the law? I mean, Abraham. Perhaps, perhaps. Or maybe just to clarify, I'm not sure. Just to clarify one. Circumcision didn't really originate with Moses, you know. I mean, Moses wrote about it, but it really originated back with Abraham, in the days of Abraham. Yeah, I just don't understand, I don't understand why he says that parenthetical statement there, but then in verse 23 he says, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses will not be broken. I just don't understand how those. David may have an answer to us. Is it another contrast between Jesus and Moses that we're seeing in John? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I think he's, he's saying in verse 22 that circumcision didn't come from Moses, but Moses did command circumcision in right. the law. So in order to fulfill the law, verse 23, they have to circumcise, even if it means doing it on the Sabbath, to fulfill the law of Moses. So Moses didn't originate that commandment, but it's in the law. It became efficient. Alan? Well, why does he say, um, why do you seek to kill me if they don't know? Well, some do, I'm sure, in, in the audience, but the crowd in general does not. I don't know that he's saying this for the crowd's benefit as much as for those who were trying to kill him. Other comments or questions? Yes, John. Regarding verse 24, um, I thought the Bible tells us not to judge. Right. Depends on the kind of judgment. So how do we judge Moses? Uh, well, in this case, I think he's saying judge fairly and, uh, you know, properly. You make the judgment that's accurate. Uh, I think that's the idea. They need to properly evaluate this based upon what the Bible says. No. You can't judge somebody's, uh, what their intentions are, but you can look at the fruits and judge that. Mm -hmm. All right, other comments or questions? Gary, yes. uh, in verse 17, what, what is he saying, uh, you shall know concerning the doctrine? 
In other words, you'll know whether my teaching, doctrine just means teaching, you'll know whether my teaching originates with me or from him who sent me. So you'll be able to discern if this teaching is really from God or not. By the way, I congratulate you. This is, this is exactly what we do at camp, but some of the camps that I go to, but you guys have done it very well. And that is, you know, I appreciate the fact you guys are still standing that are. Uh, it means you really want to listen and you want to pay attention. And it's just so much easier. <laughs> I don't care if you're down, but, but when, as, as you get sleepy, if you want to stand up, by all means do. I mean, this is a really good audience. The thing about people who are motivated is nobody cares. If you're standing up, it's going to distract anybody who's really focused on what we're doing. It'll just help you stay away. And uh, in this audience, we're motivated. You want to be here and you want to listen. So, so that's really good. I appreciate you doing that. Any other comments through verse 24? Yeah. So, the, uh, so the Jews are like, they think that's not all right to circumcise a man on the Sabbath. No, they did. And they did it. They just didn't think it was all right, all right for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. So they're saying that they can do work on the Sabbath. But Jesus can't work on the Sabbath. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. Uh, you do this, why can't I do that? I do. Yeah. Basically. In Leviticus 19, uh, verses 15 and 16, uh, it says, You shall do a no unrighteousness in judgment, and you shall not respect the person of the poor, nor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness you will judge your neighbor. You shall not go up and down as a talebearer among your people, neither shall thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I'm the Lord. And so it seems like what Jesus is saying here is don't just judge this based on appearances. Just because it looks like I've broken the law, don't just assume that I have. Look at what the law says first. Don't make assumptions about that. And, and kind of an implicit condemnation about standing against the blood of your neighbor with, with the uh, rulers trying to kill him as well. Okay, good point. Yeah. Leviticus 19, 15, and 16. All right, how about 25 to 36? Jerusalem said, Is this not he who makes him to him? Look, he speaks boldly and I say nothing to him. Do the rulers know that this is true because 
look at what they're saying here. In 25, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? They know. I mean, you know, in Jerusalem, it's become very obvious. I mean, the decree's out. You know, they weren't even allowed to talk about Jesus publicly. To them, it doesn't make sense. Jesus is right here publicly at the feast. They're not doing anything about it. You know, they've had the, the, the warrant out for his arrest, and now he's right there in public, and their hands off. So they're asking, you know, have they changed their mind? Do they really realize he's the Christ now? <laughs> and, uh, but, but they, they know he can't be. You know, because we know where he's from, but when the Christ comes, we won't know where he's from. So Jesus can't be the Christ. Isn't this the temptation when we're dealing with spiritual things like that to pick out some flaw and just fasten on that and ignore all the real and decisive facts? You know, well, we know where he's from. He can't be the Messiah. Never mind the miracles. Never mind the prophecies. Never mind the character. Never mind the teaching. Never mind all the... Evidence and credentials. Well, you know where he's from. It can't be the Christ. You know, we do that a lot. We, we blind ourselves to all evidence. We got this narrow field of, oh, we, but we know where he's from. It can't be. Well, Jesus answers, yeah, you both know, know me and know where I'm from. The truth is, I'm not, I haven't come from myself. And, and he who sent me is true, and you don't know him. But they felt like, yeah, we know him, we know where he's from, therefore, he can't be the Messiah. So they, they, they were pretty upset about the whole situation. They don't arrest him yet because God has determined the timetable his hour hasn't come yet. But they see how Jesus is gaining in popularity. More and more people are looking at his signs and... They, they, they're, they're being convinced that he must be the Messiah and that's the time for action. So the Pharisees and the chief priests get together and send out some officers to arrest Jesus. Now, what do you know about the relationship between the Pharisees and the chief priests? I'm not sure what we said. I think we said they got along well. They don't get along. They don't get along, exactly. They didn't like each other. Um, you know, the Pharisees were the more conservative, and, and they were more associated with the common people. The priests were more of the religious elite. They were more leaner, leaning toward Rome. They were more skeptical. And so normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests were normally Sadducees, were, were rival groups. For the Pharisees and the priests to band together to try to arrest Jesus is interesting. Sort of the principle that common enemies make strange, strange bedfellows. You know, you've got, you've got two groups that are enemies of Jesus related together. Just because united by their common enmity toward Jesus. I think that's what you see them doing. And so they send out these officers to arrest Jesus. They're, they're ready to take action. Um, and, and think about how they tell the officers to do this. Now, what are they afraid of in connection with arresting Jesus? 
We would assume the crowds. Yeah. I mean, you know, what would happen if Jesus is this big multitude preaching and they come in here with handcuffs and, you know, I don't know what they had, swords drawn, I guess, and, and they come and just violently grab him and haul him off. Whoa, you don't do that. I mean, I, you can imagine the mob just erupting and being able create a terrible disturbance. So I suspect they're telling the officers, you go and you watch. You find the right time and arrest him secretly. So they're going to have to be there, listen to Jesus, kind of wait until there's an opportune moment, and then they'll get it. I, apparently, that's kind of the idea that they have here. Jesus says, I'm going to be with you for a little while, and then I'm going to go to the one who sent me. And, and when I do that, it'll be too late. You'll seek me, but you won't find me because you won't be able to come where I am, which is kind of a haunt. Those are haunting words. You know, think that he'll go away and we'll want to be with him, but we won't be able to go there with him. And, and what do they say when Jesus says that? <laughs> you go to Greece, Jesus? Yeah, you're going to go teach the Gentiles. That's you're going to go to the to the Greeks. That's probably what you we, we, we wouldn't go there. Yeah, I don't know. That's, you know, it's kind of like, they have such prejudice against the Gentiles. You know, it'd kind of be like, I don't know, these guys just didn't grow up in a very prejudiced society. So it's kind of hard to relate to that in terms of like racial prejudice. Because that's not a big thing in this generation. But, but if you imagine a hundred years ago or whatever, you know, trying to brand somebody as you know, going to the blacks or something like that. You know, as it's like, oh, you go there. We wouldn't do that. So you're going to the Gentiles. You know, wouldn't we, we you, you could have them. <laughs> you know, we wouldn't do that. That's kind of ironic, though. Now, what Jesus really meant when he said he was leaving and they couldn't follow him, where was he going? He was going to heaven. He was going to die and go to be with the Lord, and they wouldn't be able to follow him there because they weren't with the Lord. But in another sense, they kind of ironically spoke the truth because Jesus was going to, through his disciples, go to the, the dispersion. He was going to go to uh, those who were, who were, he's going to go to the Gentiles eventually. Um, so so that they're, they're actually, in a sense, predicting what Jesus really was going to do. But those words still haunt them. They're still like, man, what's this he means? Where I go, you, where I am, you cannot come. I think it still bugs them that he says that. But they're trying to laugh it off by saying, I'm probably going to go to the Gentiles. <laughs> All right, comments or questions through verse 36. How far away are you from? 36. I don't know. How far are we away from Jesus? I don't really know. I mean... The Feast of Booths, so at the minimum six months. And the, I think I, I know the most problem with people, they can't accept the truth because they're too busy with they have their own minds. Do you think that was the problem with the Pharisees and the chief priests? Maybe somewhat, and they were jealous of they, Jesus also. Not just that, they were just like, they just had their own mind this way. They just put everything, they would not listen, whatever. Like, and that's certainly part of it. Yes, Lenny. 
I don't know what sort of answer I, I get to. Like we talked about the people that are kind of narrow-minded and they pick the one thing, and so they're just not going to believe that. Um, what do you say to somebody when you're studying with them? And we'll just read a few chapters or something, and they pick out the one thing that is improbable. What do you, how do you go about changing their mindset and that what you say so they're like thinking that it's not true because the thing's improbable well I mean ultimately we look at evidence if the weight of evidence is for Jesus and for the scriptures then we believe even the improbable things because of the weight of the evidence it's kind of like there are friends you might have that you believe what they told you even if it seemed kind of unusual. There'd be others you wouldn't believe in that situation. Is there, does, has Jesus established credibility enough that we believe him even when he says things that seem odd to us? Seth? Well, see, this is, uh, they're, they're saying he can't be the Christ because this one thing can't be true where I've heard, well, baptism can't be essential because what if you're on an airplane and you learn the truth? Or what if you're on a desert island and there's nobody there to, to, to dunk you underwater or something like that? They sure. pull up hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. Good point. And they'll let those hypotheticals totally overturn everything they know. Ben. One argument's as good as another, isn't it? You know, the, those who are trying to pick something apart don't have to be consistent. They have nothing they have to defend. I think there probably are a couple of different traditions. I think there was the idea that the Messiah would just sort of come suddenly, sort of poof out of nowhere. But also in the law it said he was coming from Bethlehem. So I don't know. They may not have realized the contradiction. That's a good point. There really was one. You know, one, one of the things about many of those people who look at those little things like that is they don't check their facts very well, and those things are often not valid at all. Well, often they don't, they don't match up. You know, the, the critic doesn't have to defend anything. He can, his criticism can be self-contradictory, and they still work for the critic. You know, it's easy to criticize. It's hard to come up with a, with a affirmative proposition. Daniel. You did I just think it's interesting how through what, now we're seeing people trying to apply against Jesus and stuff like that. And how Jesus is still kind of, he's still sticking to the plan on what he was sending on earth to do. And even though the disciples are kind of going, you know, what do you mean by this and that? He's not folded, he's not, you know, he's not giving in. And even though the Pharisees and the chief priests are starting to apply how they're going to get him and stuff like that, he's still sticking with it. He's often on the spot. You see a lot of these give and take conversations in which they're peppering him with questions and criticisms and things like that. And he never seems to lose his cool or get confused or whatever. Pretty amazing. Grady? Uh, the word dispersion there in verse 35, is that talking about the Jews among them? Yeah. I think 
would he go to the dispersion, the Jews that were spread out, and from there teach the Gentiles? Okay. Yeah. Caleb. I don't know. What was that question? Where did this idea that no one would know where the Christ came from, where did that originate from? Maybe you ought to know, but I don't remember. All right, anything else? I think else in people's society is that, like, if you want people to know the word of God and respect, people may not understand right away and you have patience and stuff. And another thing, if you um, stay with someone, you need to go exactly by the scriptures. Mm -hmm. No doubt. All right, anything else to verse 36? Yes. Um, uh, Diego. I don't know if you guys told about it already. But uh, in verse 30, when he says, um, when it says that uh, they were seeking to arrest him, but nobody, nobody did anything because his hour didn't come. Now, is that because they were scared to take him, or is that God? I think that's God. I think he's saying that everything's following God's predetermined course, and because it wasn't the time God set, then he didn't let anybody arrest him. Ben? In verse 35, Jews' reactions is a very common one today to the things of God and things of the Lord. Basically, he's saying something that's got a great spiritual truth, and yet they're having trouble understanding it because they can't fathom how it works on earth level, and it really doesn't. You know, they're thinking on the earthen plane, and he's really talking about something much higher. And, and we take truths that God says sometimes, and we say, that just doesn't make sense. God can't ask me to do that. God can't expect that from me. Because we're thinking on the earthen level. Or is it, God really is really asking us to do that. And we just need to lift our eyes up. Good point. All right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do this a little bit differently. This is just a harder time right after lunch. And uh, we've done very well. So let's take about a 10-minute break. I think that'll help us. And uh, 